So good morning, and really and truly what a joy it is to be with you today. If you would, grab a copy of God's Word with me today and turn to the book of Matthew. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 826. We'll be continuing from where we left off last week in chapter 21, and we will cover verses 23 through 27. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you just a brief story. My, my first job when I was 16 was at a sandwich shop back in Flower Mound. There wasn't a ton of great help there, um, and I quickly became an assistant manager because I was all that. I was awesome. <laughs> the head store manager, soon after I became an assistant manager, decided it was her time to leave. And so as she left... We were wondering, well, who are they going to bring in to replace her? Or are they going to promote one of us? And me being the new guy, I knew it wasn't going to be me. But I was wondering, who are they going to bring in? For eight months, they didn't bring anybody in. Eight months where the assistant managers got to do what they wanted. And what we ended up doing during that time was we were making the store run, and it ran pretty well. However we began making relationships with other businesses around us, like the electronics store behind us and the gym down the street. We started making these deals to where uh, we could go and get discounts on electronics at their store, and they'd come and get a free lunch. And same thing with the gym. We would go and go into the gym and have free access, and they would come and have a free sandwich on us. You know, great. That sounds like a great deal. It's awesome. And it benefited everyone. And we did this. For almost eight long months. It was great. Then one day, someone from corporate walks in with this lady that we did not know. And they introduced us to the new store manager. It was then that we found out that she was going to be stepping into that role. And it was also then that they found out everything that had been happening with the discounted and free lunches, and this new store manager, she shut it down instantly. We'd been doing this for months. Nobody was upset about this. In fact, it benefited all of us managers. This was great. She could join in on this too if she wanted. So what was the problem here? Who did she think she really was to come in and just shut us down like that? We had been the ones for eight months to carry the load of the store. We worked the overtime. We had the hard conversations of hiring and firing the employees. We ordered the necessary supplies. We were there early in the morning and we were there late at night. If we wanted to work out a deal to get a few more benefits, I think we deserved it. What gave her the right to come in and upset so many people by shutting down our deals? Well, as it turns out, Corporate had given her that authority. She was the new store manager, and it was, after all, against company policy to offer discounts or free food in exchange for anything. And you may have experienced a moment like this in your life, a moment where you had everything working the way that you wanted it, where you were the authority, you had total control, and then somebody enters in, and challenges your supposed authority. 
They suddenly change the rules. They implement a new system or direction. They begin to tell you what to do and how you should do it. It can be extremely frustrating. You know, like how Jared tells me how to detail. Just kidding. Just kidding. To give up your control and have your authority undermined cuts deep at the heart. So how do you react in moments like this? And if you were the religious leaders in the days that Jesus walked the earth, how would you react when a man who has just walked in begins flipping tables and casting out the businessmen of the temple, fashioning a whip and driving out the animals? How would you feel knowing that this same man that's disrupting everything that has been is also preaching that he is the Messiah prophesied? How about these supposed healings and miracles that are causing people's eyes and ears to turn away from you and towards him? In our text today, these leaders decide to step up once again to challenge Jesus. And in doing so, not only do they reveal the hypocrisy and the hardness of their own hearts, but it also reveals the omniscience and wisdom of Christ. Would you read God's Word with me? Starting in verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So here we are. It's Tuesday of the Holy Week. This is certainly not the first time Jesus has been approached by religious leaders in the Jewish community. We've seen Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and others pop up before and challenge Jesus. But this Tuesday meeting in the temple starts an apex moment between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. This conversation is the first of four different conversational challenges, if you will, that Jesus will face on the same day. I can only handle one. Maybe one a month. But the second conversation, so this is the first. The second conversation is when the Pharisees send their disciples and the Herodians to him in chapter 22, 15. The third is when the Sadducees approach him later that day in chapter 22, 23. And then finally, the Pharisees gather together after hearing that the Sadducees had been silenced. They come back to him in chapter 22, 34. And then finally, Jesus drops the hammer on them with the seven woes to the Pharisees and scribes. It's not too bad for a Tuesday's work, is it? 
Since his arrival in Jerusalem, Jesus performed several symbolic actions that provoked the leaders. In the last 24 hours, he's cleared the temple of the money changers, performed healings of blind and lame people, which clearly upset the priests and the scribes. He's cursed a fig tree. And then what does he do? He returns back to the temple where he angered all those people. And he begins teaching. That's bold. And it's perplexing. Jesus didn't have an official role in the temple as a priest or a scribe. So the questions from the chief priests and elders are almost like an official response of a sort that they had to give. It was inevitably coming. They ask, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? In other words... Who do you think you are? And what gives you the right to come in here and undermine all that we have done? Where do you get off thinking? You can come and drive out our businessmen, perform, also, perform some sort of healings here, or teach a new message that you're the Messiah and accept the praises of the people? Are you a madman? We have to maintain an order here. And you're a disruption to that. Clearly, clearly they did not believe Christ to be the Savior. He wasn't anything of what they expected or believed the Messiah to be. The Messiah they thought that was coming would ride alongside them and overthrow the pagan government of Rome. Not be overthrowing the sacred practices of what was happening inside the temple. He couldn't be the Messiah. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave that authority to you? And then Jesus slams down an Uno reverse card on him. He says, nah, you go first. Answer my question and I'll answer yours. I find that to be kind of provoking as well, right? Think about it. These are leaders. They were used to having people give an answer to a question that they asked. And in Jesus' delay in answering them, he's flipped the tables, figuratively, this time. And he's now challenging their beliefs and their authority. In a sense, the challenge from the leaders is now reversed on them. He says, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? This question that Jesus asks is not just a means of evading the leaders. No, that's not what he's trying to do. But it is truly a very relevant counterpoint that directs us straight to the heart of the issue. By referring to John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus has now brought continuity between their two ministries. The entire ministry of John was a means of pointing to Christ the Messiah. His ministry fulfilled what Isaiah 43 said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's John's ministry. And through his preaching in the wilderness and baptizing of people, his call to the people was for all to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He knew that the Messiah was here and it was John's job to point people to him. 
Through that ministry, John gained a lot of attention. He had many disciples and earned the love and praises of the people whose lives he had touched. Jesus knew this. He knew that many in the crowds understood John to be a prophet. Though John didn't have the credentials that were accepted by the Jewish leaders, there was no doubt that the masses loved him. So Jesus' counter-question traps the leaders. He is asking them to take a stand on a simple truth claim. Either John's baptism is from heaven, or it is from man. Declare what you believe to be the truth. So first, they could affirm that John was a prophet whose authority was from God himself. But there's a problem with that, right? The problem with doing that would mean that if God gave John the authority for his ministry, and his ministry pointed to Jesus, then that would mean that Jesus has that authority. Thus, it would require them to then answer a follow-up question of why they did not believe in John's authority from God as he pointed to Christ as the Messiah. Essentially, if they affirmed this, it would be an admittance on their part that they have been denying the truth all along, and it would bring shame upon them from the people. Or, they could, divide, they could deny the divine authority of John, which they did, and say that the authority was just given to him by the people. This would mean, this would mean now that they are saying he is not a true prophet of God. But remember, the masses loved John. So this created a larger political problem for these leaders. If they say this, now you have a problem with the people because they believe John to have been a prophet of God, so you're angering them by choosing to say he had no authority from God, resulting in a potential mob mentality or violence. So here they are, stuck between bringing shame on themselves or causing an uproar from the people. So they decide not to answer and they claim ignorance. By claiming that they do not know, in their eyes they have mitigated a potential political disaster. With either of the first two options, they would have had to give up their authority in some form, either to Jesus, who is the ultimate authority, whether they want to admit it or not, or by being stripped of authority and credibility by denying to the people what they believe. But by claiming that they don't know the answer, they can at least play damage control, if you will. As the religious leaders of the people around them, they have just shown where their hearts truly lie. Their hearts are not inclined towards speaking truth, but rather their sinful and depraved hearts are simply trying to save their own skin. They say, we, we don't know. Christ responds to this by saying, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Man, that seems kind of harsh initially, right? At first glance, it may be tempting to see Christ's response here at the end kind of as cold-hearted. 
but it's not. He's telling these men that he's not interested in playing the kind of games that they are trying to entertain. He has more important matters to attend to with those that are truly interested in pursuing after him. In their answer, the religious leaders have effectively chosen to neglect the crystal clear revelation of God standing right before them. Because they reject this revelation, they will receive no more revelation from Him. As we have moved through the Gospel according to Matthew, one major overarching goal is to help the reader, that's you and I, Matthew is trying to help you and I as the reader rightly understand who Jesus Christ is and what authority He has. If you don't understand the authority, sidebar, if you don't understand the authority that Jesus possesses, go back to Matthew 1. Start there. In Matthew 1, we're given a genealogy to prove the lineage of Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew gives us more proof from the Old Testament that Jesus is the one whom the prophets of old spoke of over and over. Chapters 3 and 11, he shows us John the Baptist, who in accordance with Malachi 3, would prepare the way and point people to Jesus. We're also shown Jesus' perfect, sinless nature in the temptation in the wilderness in chapter 4. We witness his incredible ability to teach and shepherd his flock when he gives the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5-7, through and then Matthew ends chapter 7 by saying, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. If that's still not enough for you, I'm going to continue. Because Matthew's not done. Jesus begins healing those who are hurting, who are ill, who are paralyzed, proving His divine authority over sickness. And while out in the middle of the sea, the disciples are freaking out when the storm raises. And Jesus proves His divine authority by rebuking the winds and the sea and bringing about a sudden calmness. Chapter 8, he casts out demons, which now proves he has authority over spirits. Chapter 9, verse 6, he claims authority to forgive sins. And then later in chapter 9, we're shown Jesus raising a girl from the dead. So he even has authority to raise the dead. He has authority over death. So really, this question, this question that the leaders come to him with, it should change. Instead of asking what authority does Jesus have, they should probably consider asking what authority does he not have. Because it's been made clear. It has been made clear that this man is unlike any other. Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. Truly, there is no authority that Jesus lacks. You see, Matthew doesn't expect us to just take him at his word when he makes all of these claims about Jesus. That's why he pulls from the Old Testament Scripture so much to give credibility to his claims. And there's other writers that make these claims too. You can look outside of the Gospel of Matthew. John's Gospel actually starts off by saying what? That Jesus was with God in the beginning, that He is God, and that by Him and through Him all things were created. 
Colossians 1.16 gives further detail on that, stating that since all things were created by Him, that means everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. This Creator, this Jesus has all authority. And Matthew's proving that to us. The Gospel writers are proving that to us. And the other writers in the New Testament are telling that to us. So if Christ has all authority, if He has all authority, then the issue happening here in the temple does not lie with Him. In this chapter, from verses 12-27, through we can see that there is a need for a faithful priest a leader who understands God's global mission and dedicates himself to it rather than to his own position or self-preservation. So it's not Jesus who has the issue here, right? It's the leaders of the temple who are not the faithful priests that the people need. The problem the problem lies within the heart of man. It's a tale as old as time with roots all the way back in Genesis. After Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they recognized their nakedness and immediately sewed leaves together to hide themselves. Excuse me, to hide their nakedness. And the Lord God then walks through the garden. Adam and Eve hide in the trees to try and, what? Hide themselves God, knowing full well what has taken place, He asks a question. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God knew. The question was meant to elicit a confession. Instead, Adam blames his wife and tries to hide behind her now as his defense. Eve does the same thing in blaming the serpent. And these are pathetic attempts at protecting themselves through deception. And it proves the duplicity of their now sin-tainted minds and hearts. In our text, the leaders aren't any different. And Matthew gives us a glimpse of what happens when our hearts and minds are overtaken by sin. As chief priests and elders of the people, they were designated with leading those under them to remain faithful to the truth, the Word of God. But instead of formulating a true answer to Jesus' question here, they chose to methodically carefully, methodically and carefully dodge the truth that they were faced with. This is truly just one way that the seeds of relativism show itself. In this case, the leaders may inwardly acknowledge that there may be some sort of merit to Christ's authority. That would be the truth of the matter. But they they don't care about that. They don't care about that. They don't want to submit to that. Because if they do, that would strip them of their own credentials. It would bring shame to them. Instead, they suppress the truth as a means of retaining what they want on their own terms. 
They do not truly want to know who Christ is, and they certainly do not want to share in Him with the people. And we see this played out in many different ways today. Many will suppress truth for the sake of their own agenda. It happens with our politicians on the left and on the right of the aisle. Influencers on social media. It happens in our social media algorithms. And even our news outlets. A common phrase today, live your truth. What does that even mean? It means that as an individual, you get to make your own standards for what is right or what is wrong. It means you are the determiner of what is true so that you can do whatever makes you happy. A more tangible example of what we see happening recently, not really recently, it's been happening for a while now, but it's the complete denial by those who affirm some other gender identity, ignoring what they really are biologically. By denying fundamental biological truths, they get to live their lives in the way that they desire. A suppression of truth for your own agenda. The story I told you at the beginning is also an example of this. The truth is is that as assistant managers, we knew. We knew. We knew we weren't supposed to be accepting bribes and giving away free food. We did it in order to get what we wanted. And when the new manager came in and expressed their authority and stopping all of it immediately, we didn't accept the truth. We did not confess. We didn't accept the company rules and what they stated and that what we were doing was wrong, but instead we chose to reason. We chose to manipulate and shift the argument to, well, everybody's doing it. We've all been doing it. We've been doing it for eight months. What's the big deal? What gives you the right? To make this simple, all of these examples, all of these examples, they are a way of minimizing truth to excuse oneself in order to live in service of our passions. This is wicked. This is dangerous. And this is idolatrous. The minds and hearts of mankind are depraved. And we see that. We see that in 1 Timothy 6. We see that in Romans 1. We are slaves to our sin. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you and me. All of us. Yet there is good news in the midst of all of this. That good news is that we have Christ. And that's not a small deal. Really think about that. Through His work on the cross... We are made free from the slavery to our sin. Titus 3 tells us that it's not by our own works of righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And again, because of His mercy on us, Romans 12, 1 and 2 teaches us that we can be renewed in our mind. 
1 John 1.9 goes on to say that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We become set free and we are renewed when we recognize the authority of Christ and the authoritative work on the cross. But the leaders of the temple did not truly want this and they clearly didn't understand Christ's purpose. They truly did not understand Him as the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. If they did, if they did, then they would have understood that through Christ, God is for us and we do not need the praise of man or the protection from man. Had they humbled themselves to simply confess the truth of their situation to Christ, then they would have been able to understand and dedicate themselves further to God's global mission, thus being the better priests. They could have been set free, but rather they remained enslaved, pursuing their own self-preservation and attempting to cling onto any phony amount of authority that they thought they had. John Piper makes a great statement that we should consider in relation to our text today. When talking about the mind and how we use it, he says, everybody thinks. The difference is whether we think in service of the truth or in the way the chief priests and the elders think. So the question for us to dwell upon is this, do you think in service of your passions or do you think and live in service of the truth? Do you give of yourself to your flesh or do you give of yourself in pursuit of knowing and proclaiming Jesus? How do you react when you are presented with the truth of Christ's authority. To give up your control and have the authority of your life undermined can be painful. How do you react? To truly live under the authority of Christ begins when we humbly recognize our desolate state. As elementary as this may sound for some of us who believe they are in Christ, the reality is that we fail to do this sometimes. We do this when we ignore the parts of Scripture that warn against drunkenness or gluttony and call them both sins. It could simply be hiding our secret sins in an attempt to avoid shame from others. Or how about when we choose to neglect having devoted time and prayer in prayer and study of His Word, but instead we prioritize podcasts or books or social media or the news or any other means to feed our soul and mind. 1 Peter calls us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. This means that we live in submission to His Word as our final authority. Through that, we are trusting in His goodness and His faithfulness, not in our own abilities. If we do that, then we find great peace and safety in an eternal kingdom with Christ. It is then when we have given up our authority, that we are truly free with Christ in full control. With such freedom, we can live a life that is actually in service to the truth. We can see it. We can love it. 
and we can speak it, and we can spread it for all to hear. The truth being Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. There may be, there may be some hearing this message today that do not trust in the work of Christ. If that's you, I'd ask you to consider whether or not you've truly given your ear to listening in on these claims of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Have you actually stopped to think about and to listen to these claims about Jesus and if they are legitimate at all? Have you done that? If you haven't, maybe it's because you're afraid of what might happen next. It may mean that your life gets radically changed and that you're no longer your own authority. But the kicker of it all is here is that none of us are truly our own authority because all authority, right, belongs to Him. So are you choosing to methodically and carefully, like the chief priests and the leaders, are you choosing to methodically and carefully dodge this truth you're presented with? If so, I would encourage you to quit right now and use this opportunity to seek and understand who Jesus is. Take this opportunity to live in service of the truth instead of your passions. And for you Christian brothers and sisters, consider the fact that if we truly acknowledge the authority of Christ in our life, consider what that might look like for you on a daily basis. It should affect how we use our time, like giving of our time to prayer and meditation on God's Word, or using our time more wisely and productively rather than mindlessly scrolling on our phones. It should cause us to reprioritize the things we fill our lives with. That could mean dropping extracurricular activities in order to serve the church or work in the Pregnancy Help Center or begin new evangelism efforts. Maybe this means waking up earlier in order to have family discipleship. Acknowledging this authority would also affect every interaction that we have with anybody else. It means that we treat others with the same grace and love that was first given to us. If we acknowledge Him as King in our lives, it's going to determine how we use the revelation that He's given to us. If we're like these Jewish leaders and we disregard the revelation of Christ, then Jesus will not give of Himself anymore. We see that in Jesus' final response. But if you receive and submit to this revelation in His authority, then He will be good to give more of Himself to you. Christ increasing. Us decreasing. Another way that this revelation impacts is that if it's truly changed your life, brothers and sisters, then when the moment of opportunity comes, do you grow silent because you fear the reaction of others and what they may think if you try to share the gospel? Or, do you get excited? Do you find joy in proclaiming the gospel? Do you find joy like the prophet Isaiah in chapter 12, verse 2? Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Give thanks to the Lord, 
call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Do you find joy in proclaiming that? I think there's one other aspect that this can impact us. For those that are weary, for those that are tired, by submitting to His authority over all things, we can find rest in knowing that He is sovereign. We can find rest in knowing that He is sovereign and in full control. There is nothing that comes as a surprise to Him. We can remember this in our moments of deep need and weariness. By knowing that He has that authority and control, that's a relief. What a relief that we don't have to carry it by ourselves. So I ask the question again, do you live in service of your passions or do you live in service of the truth? Let's pray. Good and gracious Father, we come before you and we give thanks for this word that you have given. This word is a lamp unto our feet. It is absolute truth and it has absolute authority. We thank you that you have not hidden it from us, but instead revealed it so that we may know you, so that we may know your son and his work on the cross, so that we may bring glory to your name. May that be the only truth that we seek and live to serve. May we also find true rest in that today. Amen.